VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome once again to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wozencroft. It's already been a tremendously busy season. In fact, Spurs have so many fixtures at the moment, Eric Dyer didn't even have time to go to the toilet between matches. That's how many games they're playing at the moment. This Thursday, we'll be discussing that and Liverpool's ominous start to the season for all the other clubs in the Premier League. Can anyone stop them? Could it possibly be the blue half of Merseyside? Everton striker Dominic Calvert-Lewandowski continues to enhance his reputation. And as Bill Edgar of the Times analyses the first 200,000 games in English league football history, we will reminisce about our favourite games as well. And there are some incredible stats in that article on the Times app right now. Uh, with me today, Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Hello. How are you? I don't want to labour the point about what happened at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium earlier this week. Eric Dyer running off to the lose. His manager, Jose Mourinho, storming in to cut him short, which I don't know who, what the worst manager to storm in on you in the middle of a, a comfort break would be. Um, if you're currently eating beef, beef goulash listening to this, by the way, it's probably the time to, to pause the podcast. Um, Gregor, you've played, ever had to run off the pitch for a comfort break? I've never had to run off mid-game. I've had a few half-time dashes. I almost missed kick-off once, actually. Uh, I'm not sure anyone noticed, but I kind of came in <laughs> on to the pitch just like the ref was about to blow the whistle. Um, I think the the worst bowel-related story, so I can't, not a sentence ever thought I would say, uh, that I had in my career was at Northampton Town. Uh, I was proper ill, and... Yeah, I was in turmoil. <laughs> and uh, Chris Wilder was the manager. Uh, we're in a relegation battle like at, at spring. There wasn't long left to kind of stay up. Um, so I turned up, I told them I was struggling. I told the doctor. The doctor fed me several Imodium tablets. Uh, saw the manager, he said, I want, you, I want you to play. I was like, right, okay. So I'm pulling on one sock and then running to the toilet and then like coming back and pulling on the next sock and running to the toilet and back. And eventually I was sweating and dizzy mess and I said, look, I I can't play. And saying that to Chris Wilder was, was difficult. And you can imagine like if looks could kill, uh, he, he wasn't a happy bunny. So anyway, I, got, I went home. By the time I got home, I heard we were 3-0 down. Ooh, and oh dear. Yeah, it was, that was tough to take. But also the worst part was, the number of Imodium tablets that the doctor gave me, I had for the next week the opposite problem, if you can get what I mean. <laughs> so, so I've never missed a game, but that's the only time I've ever missed a game or missed any action uh, for any bill-related issues. Let's not talk about that again. <laughs> Alison? I've got, I've got a different sort of 
toilet story. I My first time as a fan on the cop at Anfield, I think I was 13 or 14, and um, I fainted because obviously it was a big moment for me, but I fainted. <laughs> and, my, and my father, with the help of a steward, had to carry me out of the stadium. And the only they told me afterwards the only safe way to get me out was to go through the men's urinals and i oh. came to i came to as i was being carried through the men's urinals because which sounds gross <laughs> which sounds maybe it's like smelling salts for the the new oh. age but i was i felt so honored and <laughs> it was a big deal for me it, it, instead of thinking oh i missed the game i was I was carried out through the men's urinals. <laughs> I sort of felt it was a rite of passage and cemented my love for the club. Don't you think it did? That was your only journey to the men's at, at Anfield, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're not generally speaking a fainter, are you, Ali? I used to be, not anymore. I see. What changed? Uh, I don't know. Got my periods. <laughs> 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 Oh, this is an interesting start. Brilliant. What a start to the podcast. What a start. Um, I think I had one at, at university myself. I was one of those. I was out every single night of the week at uni, playing for the uni football team Wednesday afternoons, as you do. And um, 10 minutes in, you know, I don't know what it was, just started burning a little bit of energy and I couldn't help it. I just, but the problem was that the pitch that we were playing on, like many, you know, Sunday league type grounds, was was it was it was genuinely like a 200 meter dash to just to get to the loo so i was i was tired i was hung over and then i'm sprinting across these pitches like not worried about the fact that other matches are going on and i'm just running through the <laughs> middle of the pitch to get to this little porter loo which is like i could barely get into by the way those of you that know how big i am and yeah honestly it was just like it has stood out in my mind i felt for eric dyer at that moment but i felt for him more when jose Mourinho stormed in uh, to get him back out there on the pitch because I couldn't understand it. I was at the ground and just saw him sprint off and I thought, God, he's so disgusted with the chance that Spurs have just given away that he's left. I couldn't believe it. And I thought, oh, okay, Eric Dyer did go down the tunnel a minute ago. I'm sure he'll be, he'll be back. But um, yeah, we'll move on from that. And interesting, I don't think we're going to have a better start to the podcast than that. I'll be honest no with you. No chance. But let's, um, let's reflect a little bit on what happened earlier on in the week. A 3-1 win for Liverpool at Anfield over Arsenal on Monday night. And I think it sent a warning again about how hard Liverpool will be to beat. Alison, the, the good times are rolling. Yeah, it's it does feel like it's only Liverpool that can beat themselves at the moment. There's um there's a they've got their aura back, and I think there are various reasons for that. Um one was I was, I didn't say it too often, but deep down I was worried if, if Liverpool didn't sign Thiago. It, it, it became in itself a negative, even though they never had him to begin with. The not signing of him felt like a lack of uh, ambition, faith in the manager, that, that sense that they, are, they have the ability to play slightly differently in midfield and adjust when needed and to bring in somebody that had such a huge winning mentality. I actually don't, think it matters if he ever plays another minute of football what matters was that we signed we signed him and you could I think it's quite palpable the effect that has had on the team they look like oh we're in a team that even though we're told we're not going to rest on our laurels we definitely aren't now I think that was important I don't think you can overestimate the way that Jota came on 
and immediately looked like he was going to find places that were scoring opportunities without even trying. It's, it's obviously his natural ability. And um, Pepin Linders said, you can't, you can coach lots of things, but one thing you can't coach is that instinct to know where to be so that you're going to get a chance at goal. And he's got it. Um, he scored the 400th goal under, league goal under Klopp. No Liverpool manager has scored them, reached that landmark as quickly as Klopp. And you sort of think, oh my goodness, they're not taking their foot off the pedal, are they? They are... It's as if everything that's happened with with COVID and limp, slightly limping over the line, perhaps to reach the title, that doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter. It's a new, a sense of re-energizing, going for it. All competitions are possible. They play with a smile on their face, and I think no matter how good the opposition are, that is something enormous to to tackle when you get you're facing Liverpool when they look so blooming happy I, I had the feeling myself that they wouldn't have that same energy going into the season that's one of the reasons I thought Manchester City would win the title but having seen Liverpool's first few games it's an effervescence there they seem revitalised and you're right Alison I think those signings have made a big difference because there seems to be in particular with Diogo Jota a, a real hunger to push himself into that team to be a credible part of playing regularly for Liverpool. He hasn't come to make up the numbers, be a squad player and get a couple of medals. And that is important. And of course, there is a lot of youth there as well. Um, I, I wouldn't say I'm surprised by how good they are, but it's more the the energy with which they're playing. You know, it seems like they've won nothing in the last couple of years and they've got it all still to do. Tom, revitalised team in your eyes? A little, but also a slightly newer Liverpool. I think what Alliston alluded to there is something we discussed towards the end of the restart in that they actually weren't at their best. And as I've said before, I think they actually, in a season overall, played some better football the year before when they didn't win the title. And that's why it led to some people questioning how they would approach this season. But as Alisson said, you bring in a world-class player like Thiago, which not only boosts morale, but allows you to play slightly differently in midfield, but also, as we've said, Diogo Jota. Um, I found it interesting whenever you hear Jürgen Klopp talk about the new left-back, um, I think he's called Simikas, not very good at my Greek pronunciation, but um, he's so excited about him and said what a great player he is. And um, he's you know, he's probably not going to displace Andrew Robertson straight away, but there's... Straight there's away. So, he's not going to. <laughs> no, he's not. He's not no, he's not he's going to. do to. well too. No, he'll do very well too. All right, are you Scottish? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's Robertson. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a left back. <laughs> um, no, but I just think there's, this, there's, there's a new freshness to it. And that's what the great teams down the years have done. That's what, you know, all the great managers always said. The great players, you win something, you enjoy it for a little bit, you start again afresh, you re-energise, you refresh the squad. And that's what they've done so brilliantly. Um, and I think it both, you know, it's it's very ominous for the rest of the Premier League. I think, um, and as as you alluded to briefly there, Hugh, the you, the young players coming through, um, they played a team in League One that I'm not going to mention because Gregor always tells me off. But they 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 were brilliant, and I know it was only this team in League One who you know are nobodies, but they were fantastic. And the young players, Curtis Jones, Nico Williams, their ability on the ball. And uh, you know we should we should almost have a, a buzzer and alert for whenever Tom mentions overall club ethos and strategy 
but everyone fits in and it all looks the same. You know, you've got Minamino coming in and everyone's going, oh, look at him dropping deep to link the play in the same way that we've been saying about Firmino for many years. It, it, it all just works and it all just fits and they've only added to it and improved on what they had before. It's incredibly ominous for the rest of the league, I think. Uh, Gregor, just on Arsenal, and they got a bit of a soft spot for them. You know, uh, Mikel Arteta he went away, tested himself against Jurgen Klopp again. How, how do you think he did? Because there were some big chances for Arsenal in that game. I thought it was a fascinating game. I think uh, the two teams knew exactly how each other were going to approach the game, and it didn't alter their approach one bit. You know what I mean? They kind of. Arsenal and Arteta knew that Liverpool are the best press, best pressing opponents in Europe, probably along with Bayern Munich, and they still tried to play out from the back. And Liverpool knew that there was a chance that you know Arsenal are probably good enough to once or to occasionally pass through their press, and that's going to give up opportunities. And he didn't care. So it was kind of I don't know. I think that's like a battle of elite football at the moment. It's the the best teams are the ones that can win. You know. Are working hard to, to win the ball high up the pitch and also there's a team like Arteta's that are kind of they don't care about that they still want to they're still kind of evangelical in their approach to to pass it out from the back um so I think you know Arsenal, the gulf was was huge I think the gulf was huge still you know Arsenal what well, the fact that they they were you know so determined to continue playing that way and they did fashion some chances Klopp was right in that you know a couple of them because of the late offside flags nowadays, uh, they probably wouldn't have counted. But you know the way they created the first goal, even though Andy Robertson made a mistake, um, that was one one instance where they played through Liverpool. Um, so I, you know, I, was, I think it was encouraging for both sides. I think Arsenal could see progress, and they could see that they've got a manager now whose effect is clear on the team, and they're improving. Um, and you know, they're, they're much more exciting to watch. And Liverpool are just a machine. I don't think I've seen a ball passed across the face of an open goal as much as I did with Arsenal. Bernd Leno and David Luiz just seem to fancy that pass a lot. And clearly that's a directive from the manager, but it did put the frighters into me. I just, it, watching the game, I just also think, was thinking that it's so far removed from the sport I played. And that's not just because I played at a different level. It's also, even five years ago, I retired five years ago. The Premier League didn't look like that five years ago. You know, there wasn't quite the same... Uh, you know, Pep Guardiola, his effect wasn't really being felt quite to quite the same extent. Klopp hadn't really got Liverpool into the same sort of, you know, well-oiled machine that we're seeing now. That's you know, that is the way football is going, and you know, it's interesting that there's still people saying, "Oh, Arsenal, what are you doing trying to play out from the back?" But it's about balancing risk and reward, and they think that the risk of doing that will create enough opportunities and they'll score more goals than they'll concede because of it. And that's the way, that's the direction of travel for the best teams in modern football now. Do you watch the modern day game wishing you did play now? Regardless of level, regardless of, you know, you came through at, you know, Nottingham Forest, a big club. Obviously now you, you'd imagine how you would have been coached in that academy is probably, as you say, all academies, you know, as we said, right down into the Football League are trying to play this kind of attractive possession football. Do you wish you'd played at this time in comparison to when you did play? I don't know. I mean, there's two things I would say, but one is this, the, the, there's a sad, sad realisation that I wouldn't have been good enough to play that, that kind of football. I'll be brutally honest about that. And the other thing is, if, you know, I played at clubs where you watched under under 23s teams and they're, they're being coached to play like this. And you think, yeah, you know, that's, that's progressive, but 
for the majority of those players, it's an absolutely different sport, as I say, from the career that they might have a chance of forging. It's, you know, it's only the very best, even in the Premier League, that can play football like that. And so everyone else is are really set up to counter against that. And so I think, you know, watching kids being coached in that way now, it's, you know, part of me thinks it's positive and part of me thinks they're being set up to fail. Gregor, I, I can't stand when ex-professional players say they couldn't have played in the current era. Listen, you were there, you did it, you got to a certain level with the coaching of your day, whether that would be the mid-50s or the 2020s. <laughs> there was, you know, there were only a certain number of players better than you at that given time. And it would be the same now. you got to back yourself on that. Uh, Alison. On the psychiatrist's couch with mm. Hugh, this mm. sounds like. We don't, Gregor doesn't need, he doesn't, he doesn't need analysing. He made to feel better. But just, just, it's just interesting, when Gregor was talking there, it just reminded me, about, it was about five to six years ago, and I was um, at the old Spurs ground. And in the press box there, you, you sit, used to sit very, very close to the pitch, low down, almost just behind the managers, really. And it suddenly dawned on me, that the body shape almost overnight had changed from elite players, what they used to be. And, and, and it made me think there, there must be a whole raft of kids who would never even be built to be able to play. You know, when I started writing about football, you could be a little bit porky and still be fated and be good. And you could, you could be an odd shape and still have a place in a team. Now they all have to have, the body shape has to be the same. It's not just the tactics and the coaching and the style. It's, it's what you are physically able to become, I think, which might, might I think might, might kill, kill the dreams for an extra, extra 100,000 kids. <laughs> that, does make, that does all raise an interesting point, though, doesn't it, about linking it back to Liverpool and because not all of these incredibly talented youngsters will make it for Liverpool. And as Gregor hinted at, if that's the same across the board in the Premier League, you know, we see it, and I've seen it down the years, going to games lower down the pyramid... There is a marked difference, though, now when you see a kid from a Premier League academy go on loan to a club lower down the pyramid, both in terms of the thought processes that have gone into that loan. Is he going to play the way we want him to play? And is, you know, is he able to fit into a new style? So you've seen, I saw years ago, oh, we've got this 19-year-old lad from whatever club. He's meant to be brilliant. And he was absolutely useless at League Two or Conference or any level. Because as you say, Gregory, he's not he's had ten years or whatever since the age of eight playing a certain way. And then he's down in a league where you've got to take one touch out your feet, bang it down the line, and you've got to be prepared to be crunched in a tackle every two minutes. But I do think that is slightly changing. You're seeing at League One, championship level, Swansea are a great example, we've talked about them before of a club where clearly they've got a coach in Steve Cooper, who's an England youth, former England youth coach, has worked with a lot of great English talent. Rian Brewster, I, you've probably got to say, there's no surprise he went on loan to Swansea because he knew he was going to be playing a team that was fast-paced, possession-based, um, and we'd, he would be given a chance to play in a system which Liverpool were like, yeah, that's a good way of him developing. And that, that happens a lot. Swansea are a great example, but there are lots of others. Um, so I, 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 I don't know whether it's necessarily true anymore that some of these kids won't make it. They can then just go and play that way further down the pyramid because there are so many more clubs further down the pyramid who want to play, the, the, for, for want of a better, more eloquent term, the Pep Klopp way, if you like. Well, you're, spot on. you're spot on, Tom, because it used to be a, a kid 
would go on loan from top flight clubs simply to grow up, learn how to cook in a bedsit and to play play against real men. And, and nobody cared about the style of football. That is that is the biggest revolution in the way they treat academy kids, absolutely. I, I, I'm not sure I totally agree in that, you know, the likes of Paul Merson or Matt Letizia or Julian Dix carrying a little bit of extra weight. I just think that the the requirements of a professional footballer are different now. The body shape didn't necessarily change, but the things that you could get away with in terms of your diet and lifestyle ha- have changed. And Matt Letitia would have had a rip-roaring eight-pack, you know, if he was playing for Southampton no, now. No, he wouldn't. Because they just wouldn't let him, you know. They just wouldn't let him, you know. Listen, we could talk about that all day. Tom, you got one more, one more point on it. Just to quickly bring you back to Liverpool, I'd be interested in any of our views on you know, as I said, I watched them play against that League One team. I'm not going to mention, and so many, so much good young talent. Do we think the likes of Curtis Jones, Nico Williams, are they going to be Liverpool players for the coming years? Do we think they have actually got it to do the Trent Alexander-Arnold and push into the team? Because, for example, Nico Williams is, you know, he's got Trent Alexander-Arnold in front of him. He's one of the best right backs in the world in modern football. That, in just to link it back to Liverpool, that's to me is as we said is another one of their ominous points. I'd be interested in whether Alisson and Gregor think they've those players have got what it takes to be Liverpool players in this amazing team. Oh, I don't. I I feel terrible and disloyal saying it, but both of those players look like they belong at um, a more mid-table Premier League club. There's something. There's something missing. I, I, it's that intangible. Whether it's, I think probably it's just that ability to, while you're on the pitch, to give everything and not make and make so few mistakes. That's not what you talk about. Both players, I think, Nico Williams in particular, they have a lot of attributes, but they, you you notice their mistakes and you notice why they're probably never going to usurp the quality Liverpool have at the moment. I think they're both they've both got a chance. Yeah, I mean, I think as you say, the the player that. Uh, Williams has in front of him is a big, a big entrance. It's tough, tough luck, really. But I think they both, you know, they both look like they've got the confidence to play at that level, and they're both athletic enough. And as you say, that's a big thing. And that, you know, the reason that conversation diverged a little bit into, you know, what a modern player looks like is because Liverpool's team look just ridiculously fit. You know, it's just from the front always, just the way they press them and it's relentless. It's kind of you know, it was quite it was quite jarring to watch. I just thought these guys are just kind of machines. That's the word everyone keeps coming back to. You, they look like a well-oiled machine, and they and they're kind of you know if they keep playing like that, then no one's got a chance to get close to them really. They could take take a step forward for the sport, for the Premier League in general, though setting new standards uh, the blue half of Merseyside at the moment are setting a new standard for themselves it could be their best start to the season since well well, in over 100 years they've already got 100% record in the Premier League they're into the EFL Cup quarterfinals uh, they've won all their six games so far this season led from the front by their striker Dominic Calvert-Lewin who got his second hat-trick of the season uh, last night versus West Ham as well and he could well be selected in Gareth Southgate's England squad for the friendly against Wales and the Nations League matches with Belgium and Denmark. He probably is looking at the Premier League at the moment the most improved player from last season. I know it's early on. It's interesting to me this because three years ago I wrote um, a column on Calvert-Lewin and it was prompted by the fact that Wayne Rooney had... um 
just retired from international football. And my point was, don't get too upset. Calvert-Lewin is is coming through. He'd, he'd scored the winning goal in the under-20 World Cup final. I, I use words like he's got, at 20, he's got confidence, maturity and pace. And I thought, this is three years ago, I thought he was going to, I thought he was going to, I thought he was going to kick on immediately. And he didn't really. He just didn't. And you've got, given what he's done so far this season, as you say, Hugh, two hat-tricks already. It's got to be the manager. It's got to be the manager has looked at him and seen where other managers have been going wrong. I mean, it's if you've got someone who's young and clearly got the attributes required it's got to be a mental thing or how you set the team up and how he fits into it and doesn't feel the pressure of the team changing for example so Ancelotti and when you listen to Ancelotti talking about him like Ancelotti was asked you know you, you Carlo you must be expecting him to be chosen by England I mean why they think overseas managers give two hoots I don't know but he said he said Ancelotti said no no probably not England have got loads of great talent not very important he'll be fine and that gives you a tiny insight into how avuncular he probably is, how laid back he is with Dominic. And that's, he's clearly just made him feel, you know, I think you're fantastic. Go, just do it. You've got the, you've got the skills. It's been a waste of three years, in my opinion, for him to get to this point. But clearly, he's, he's now working with a manager who just, just knows how to use him both mentally and tactically. Alison Carlo probably just wants to get him on a new contract before he gets an England cap because that's like an extra 50 grand a week. So he's, he's, just being, he's just being smart there. He's just being smart. Talk him down, get that contract signed, then you can talk him up. Uh, Tom, I'll come to you next. I know Gregor's got a point as well. I think Alison makes an interesting point about managers and systems and things in relation to young players. I remember watching uh, Calvert-Lewin in a match for Everton, I think against Chelsea uh, at Goodison Park. And I think Everton might have even won. And... All you know, top pundits, striker pundits, Ian Wright and Alan Shearer and lots of others were praising him for his work off the ball and what a titan he was. And look at him running the channels and challenging for the ball. And he actually, I remember thinking at the time, I, I was sucked in and was like, oh yeah, that's brilliant. That's a mark of a good player. But um, Karen Carney did some really interesting analysis in the Times over the weekend about how uh, Ancelotti has changed Calvert-Lewin's game slightly and simplified it. And that relates back to Alison's point about just go and play but also just keep the game simple if you look at some of his touch maps and where he's on the ball and where he finds himself on the pitch he's far more just in the box in front of goal that old kind of cliche of if you want to be a striker want to be a good striker just be between the posts I think it was Gary Lineker who said that just make sure you're in the middle of the goal it might have been Ian Wright and if you look at his goal against Crystal Palace that's where he was I'm going to be here if you cut the ball back I'm going to be here I'm going to be waiting for the ball and that's perhaps where Ancelotti has changed um, and I should also say while I'm talking about Everton having slagged them off at the start of uh, the season and said I don't quite get it I'm still not fully convinced but we can think we can all agree that their front three are firing this season um, and Calvert-Lewin I'm not sure whether it matters as Alison said whether he gets an England call up or not because it's just great to see him fulfilling some of that potential that we saw early on there's definitely some truth in what Alison said in that you know you can tell even by a few other snippets of what Ancelotti said he said if if you don't score 20 goals this season you and me are going to have a problem that's what he said to Cavalier and he also said the thing about Inzaghi I think it was he said he'd scored three quarters of his goals with one touch he said, you've got to score more goals with one touch. And he scored seven of his eight goals with one touch. I mean, you can see what he do as well. This first goal last night when 
had a little check run away from Declan Rice. Ball dropped over his shoulder, he controlled it with his left and finished with his right. So uh, the thing I like about him is he's, he, he really is an all-rounder. He's kind of, he's brilliant with his, strong with it, uh, holding up with his back to, back to goal. He's a match for anyone in the air. And he, he's really, really willing runner in behind as well. And now, you know, the thing, as Tom said, is he's getting in between the sticks. You see him, I think the other goal last night, Awobi hit the post and he was first, first onto it. You know, he's always following in on shots. Um, so that was the question mark. That was the only question mark. Everyone looked at him and thought, yeah, he's, he works really hard. He's a great athlete. He's, you know, all-round game is good. He just needs the goals. And a part of that was because he wasn't the main man. And I actually think Duncan Ferguson deserves a, a big bit of credit for that too, because when he was became caretaker, he said he put absolute faith in him. He said, you know, he'd worked. I think he'd worked with him quite a lot as uh, his time at the club. And he said, you're the main man, and he scored. He scored some goals for him, and it's kind of carried on from there. So, you know, I think. I think both of those, you know, the last Ferguson and Ancelotti saying you're the the main man, and I think you know I've also you I read that Marcel Brands, you know, I think he he kind of fought to not to sign another big striker. I think he, he you know there were voices saying, you know, we maybe we need to add another striker because you know Moise Kane's not even he's not really stepped up, and who else, who's behind him? Who's behind Calvert Lewin as a striker for Everton now? But I think he said no, we need to place our faith in him and you know that's the thing he's got the faith and his game's being tinkered a little bit and that he's through the middle so combination is great and he's got to be he's, he's got to be the second in line to Harry Kane now for England It raises an interesting point about England when it comes to us getting excited about this young English talent and looking at where they're playing and how they're playing and you've got to look at part of the reason Calvert-Loon's doing well is as we say he's changed his position changed his game slightly but also James Rodriguez has had a great start to his Everton career, much better than I thought. And when you've got someone creative like that playing alongside you, it, it makes it very easy, I imagine, for a striker. And then we then go, oh, we'll get him in the England team. Have England got someone who plays like James Rodriguez and plays in a similar position? I think that's something to always factor in when we're getting excited about young English talent and get him in the squad that's only good enough so far if they're then going to be allowed to play in a similar way. Otherwise, we've got to lower our expectations a little and can't then just expect them to be brilliant for England if they're not going to be playing the same way in the same system. You know, All, all, all top players have to adapt, of course, but I just think that's something to factor in uh, when it comes to England call-ups with young players. What's interesting about it for me as well is just the, the tactical differences. Um, you know, we were speaking about the lower leagues in England before. I think we've all been raised on a certain perception of what different roles on the football pitch are. And you mentioned the the running the channels for a forward, the holding the ball up, the doing the, the dirty job. And these young players need to learn how to do that. Those are the basics for a centre forward. And then we praise someone like Brendan Rodgers for getting a 33-year-old uh, Jamie Vardy to stay between... The, the, the centre of the goal stop wasting his energy and put it all into putting the ball in the back of the net because he's an older player but to see someone do that with a younger player and actually look at their game and say you're not going to be much value for us doing all the, the work out wide stay between the posts you're not really great finishing from a distance let's see if you can finish from 12 to 15 yards and to be honest in Calvert-Lewin's uh, case it's about one to six yards um, <laughs> then I think that deserves a lot of credit because I'm not sure many many managers would have looked at a player like Calvert-Lewin and said, you know, I want him to be the next Pippo Inzaghi. Let's stop wasting him out wide. Just stay between the two centre-halves and tap it in the back of the net whenever it drops for you, which I thought, I think, 
you know, we give so much credit to, to tactical changes and differences in football compared to way back when. I mean, that is such a subtle change that has made such a huge difference for Calvert-Lewin. I, I just think it shows what happens when you support players, really. On Everton, obviously, I had my views at the start of the season. Are we particularly impressed? Do we think this is, you know, a size, a sh- you know, massive sea change for them? Obviously, the front three are playing well, but if you look at the games they've won, it's very impressive to win that many games, of course. But some of the teams they've played, I'd say Crystal Palace away was probably their hardest match. I'm just cautious about getting too carried away as them as a team at the moment. Yeah, they were fortunate with a, a kind of handball decision in that game as well. Hey, yeah, I mean the thing, the thing that their their recruitment has done is made is made Everton look like a balanced team now. Certainly, a starting eleven. Although I think Allen and Richarlison came off injured against West Ham last night, so you know that would be a loss. But you know, Allen, Allen looks like a great signing. Brilliant, you know, kind of protecting the the back four, and the, you know, back four haven't always looked that convincing as well. So that he's been a huge signing and. Dukuri obviously is a box-to-box midfielder and Hamez has started on fire but it's whether he can maintain that form so look Everton fans have got to be delighted because this is got the, this is almost I think if they beat Brighton it'll be their best start since something like the 1800s and <laughs> uh, and then they go into the the Merseyside derby you know with the kind of wind in their sails so yeah, wheels I'd, come off <laughs> 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 well Ancelotti's someone who's uh, Got a decent record against Klopp as well, so. Uh, oh, here we go. Here we <laughs> I mean, go. I th- look, yeah, I think overall, I think Everton, if they were closer to the top six this season, it would be a big step in the right direction, you know? I think one of the things helping uh, the allure of Everton this season is when you look at Spurs, when you look at Chelsea, when you look at how Wolves have started, when you look at Manchester United, I mean, there's really nothing for them to fear given what we've seen from them so far, it's not like you'd look at the top six and say, it's going to be tough for them to break that mould. You know, it, it, it seems like there's a possibility that they can, if they keep up this form, you know, they can get in there. So why not Everton? It's got to be someone. Uh, we've seen great seasons last season from from Leicester, for example. You know, Everton could, could pull that off. Uh, so we'll see what they've got. Anyway, you're listening to The Game Podcast from The Times, a brand new episode every Monday and Thursday. Just make sure you hit subscribe button on your podcast app to stay with us and keep in the loop. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Now then, there's a fantastic article. Everyone, you've got to check this out. It's on the Times uh, app and it will put a smile on your face. The Game Daily is by Bill Edgar and he's had a look at the history of league football in England 
as it reaches the landmark of 200,000 games this weekend. The Football League's uh, launched back in 1888. Ah, seems like only yesterday. Uh, Bill has pulled out some amazing stats, though. Uh, Preston, Burnley fans, Peter Shilton, Tony Ford, and how only 3,479 games have been live on TV out of all of those uh, 200,000s. Tom, this is a great piece from Bill. I would thoroughly recommend any listener who's not got a time subscription to go out and get one for Bill Edgar's pieces alone, arguably. We have some fantastic content on the Time Sports uh, section, but Bill is, uh, I mean, he's hes unique. There's no one else in uh, sports journalism like him. Some of his ideas that he comes up with uh, and some of his stats and facts. If we are about to head into a second lockdown and you need some help with sport quizzes, uh, it's a worth a time subscription for that alone. I mean, some of the stats in here are absolutely brilliant. Obviously, uh, having watched Liverpool beat us 7-2, uh, I was slightly demoralised, but I was relieved to see that uh, Bill has uh, detailed the most goals in a game ever. Uh, and we see that Oldham once lost 13-4 to Tranmere in 1935. Uh, but sadly, the Mighty Imps do make an appearance in that list. We lost 11-3 to Man City in November 1895. Uh, which certainly puts in context my highest scoring game that I ever went to, which was uh, we lost. I went to Bury as a six-year-old in February 1996. Uh, most the only things I remember from the game were eating a lot of packets of crisps and a very strange moment where, because in those days my you know my dad was a bit worried about uh, fans and me being young, so we would sit in the home end and be cheering on the away side. And uh, Barry ended up beating us seven-one. And I think by the sixth or seventh goal, my dad started sarcastically applauding Berry, which was very confusing for me, being sat in the home end, cheering on the away team, but watching my dad cheer on the home team sarcastically. It was a, distur- it was a disturbing moment and one I've never really got over. Um, but there's, there's so, so many great things in here. Uh, one, of the, um, one of the great stats is talking about teams uh, that have most, most meetings. Everton versus Aston Villa is top of the list with 204 and I wondered if, Gregor, you can remember any of the teams you faced faced most often, or even if there was a team you just felt like you faced all the time. Bradford City, absolutely, because I played them in, in all three divisions. I played with, played against them in the Championship, and I think our, so our fortunes broadly kind of mirrored one another's throughout the kind of 15 years of my career, which means kind of slowly downwards. Uh, <laughs> 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 played in the Championship, played in League One. Played in League Two. I think they're still in League Two. So, <laughs> yeah, Bradford. I think are top. Um, yeah, I don't. I think I've, I was trying hard to think of kind of. I think probably the fact that my last ever game. In fact, my last two games were at Wembley. That's probably slightly unusual. And I also played. I also played with a with a player at Crew, George Ray, who made his professional debut in a cup final at, at Wembley which has got to be pretty unique. I might check out whether that is with Bill or not. I can't think. Who, who makes her debut at Wembley? <laughs> Bill will definitely have the answers, that's for sure. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to ask about your first game that you went to, most memorable, something that stands out from all the games that you've been to. But Alison, we know already that's about going past the Urinals at Anfield, so you don't have to tell, <laughs> you don't have to tell us yours, obviously. No, well, my life's split in half, isn't it? Because there's being a fan and a child and those games are etched on your brain like when you look at the sun too long you're never they're just there forever 
and well, then the sun, the sun newspaper's not that bad is it <laughs> <laughs> and then there's I've been writing about football for 26 years go on say that's impossible how can that what? be possible no way. <laughs> surely <laughs> not <laughs> and um, I suppose you I still love the game but you, you do have a different approach when you're working and I think probably the most significant, I don't know the date because I'm, I'm a girl, girls don't like dates or stats, but you, I, the first game I went to, I think it was the first game, league game I reported on where Liverpool were involved. It was at the old, it was at Highbury and it, I think in added time, Robbie Fowler scored um, the winner for Liverpool, which changed my intro, changed everything about my match report. So instead of going hooray because Liverpool had won, I, I went, oh, bloody hell, because, <laughs> because um, I had to rewrite my intro. And I was, afterwards, I thought, what happened there? And then I realised what happened there was work comes first before being a fan. Uh, I thought, oh, well, I can do the job then. When I first started the job, the question I was asked most often was, how can you possibly cover Liverpool and be professional about it? don't you put on a different hat when you're watching your team or indeed teams which are have an impact on what your team do and that Robbie Fowler goal proved to me that work and deadlines and being able to be slightly dispassionate I could do it and that was that was a huge huge moment for me actually and oh my I've got such longevity guys <laughs> I can cope I can cope with the emotion does it I mean I, I've got my own view on whether being in this industry and having it as a job changes the way you watch football. And I, I don't know what you think, Gregor, you know, from making that transition from, from training every day and prepping for a game in terms of analysing what the other team are going to do and then going into a Saturday. Now for you, preparing for, you know, the game that you're going to go and watch on the weekend to, to write up, is there, a, well, I guess there is a big difference. Yeah, I think actually you, you have more interest in the analysis of football when you stop playing football. I think... It, often those those were the kind of tedious parts you wanted to play football actually the, the the kind of physical act of playing football but now you know it's much much more part of the job you've got to be able to kind of be informed about why something's happening before in front of you rather than than doing it so yeah that's changed that's changed massively i also just remembered that my association with bradford has continued and that the, probably the the single most uh, I don't want to say worst, but uh, longest job I had was um, pitching up with the Bradford supporters bus um, at 6am in Bradford and travelling to Yeovil Town away, which was supposed to be like the least alluring FA Cup tie of, of the draw, I think it was two years ago. So I had to travel to Bradford, get the bus down to Yeovil with the fans travel back to Bradford and then home. It was like a 17-hour, 500-mile round trip. Um, so I don't know what's wrong. I've got some association with Bradford. I may have to look into this. <laughs> Just saying there's the potential for me to torture Gregor in the future by making sure I send him send him on any and all jobs relating to Bradford from now until the, until the end of our association together as colleagues. I think um, one of my early experiences in, f in football, in fact, the first game that I went to, unlike a lot of people, neither of my parents are British, and, and, and not particular football fans. Um, I think my dad got into it over the years, but he's from the West Indies and 
was far more of a cricket fan and always thought I should be either batting or fast bowling for the West Indies. Um, so I never really had the family, you know, taking me down to the football and stuff. I grew up in Northwest London. QPR is the first team that I went to watch. I think the first game I went to, I was nine or 10, so I wasn't that old. But I remember, I think it was, it must have been the championship. Peter Beagree scored a goal in front of all the QPR fans and then came and did his trademark celebration, did a little flip in the corner of the ground where my youth football team had been taken on a day out to watch this game. And there's only one way to describe it. Clearly, all the Queen's Park Rangers fans, they weren't very happy with Peter Group Egree. (laughs) And it was the first time I put my middle finger up at someone. And I had absolutely, (laughs) I had absolutely no idea why, but everyone else had done it. Everyone else had done it. So I just thought, this is what you do at football matches. And I was nine years old and I just flipped him off, basically. I mean, and that was the introduction to football. And I'm hoping that everyone else's introductions to to, to the football league weren't exactly like that. Um, but it, it, I, I honestly, I when I think about my earliest memory of football, that is pretty much it in terms of going, going to live games. Well, as I say, mine involved mostly... Um packets of crisps to keep me distracted from how bad uh, the team I was supposed to be supporting were but just just to prove again how uh, Bill is good for any quizzes I'm going to ask and this is proof of whether you've been uh, swatting up or not what's the most common score line in the history of the football league I'm cheating though 1-0 no 1-0 incorrect 1-0 one 1-0 all. One all. Yeah. 23,205 occasions it's been 1-0 one 1-0 all. One is next who has got the most wins Man United. Man United. Man United. Sorry, Alison. Liverpool are second, second in that yeah. list. Apologies. And this is a good one. Grounds with the most games. What's top? Well, I'd seen that 233 grounds were used in the history of the Football League. Preston. Preston. Very good, Gregor. Oh. You've been swatting up and preparing. 2,506. <laughs> Burnley, Turf Moor second. Molyneux of Wolves in third. So there you go. But Bill does not. Bill does not say... How, which players have been asked for their autograph the most? Do you, do, you know, do you know? A, two questions. Gregor, how many times have you been asked for your autograph? And B, oh, do countless. people do I that? I can't remember, Alison. Do people do that? Alison, people must ask you. I, 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 I have actually, yes. But, <laughs> but, um, do, do people still ask? I, I mean, now we're all on our phones and no one carries a pen or paper anymore. Do do Other than getting a shirt signed through the club or through a charity do people wander around with autograph books anymore is it a thing anymore yes they, I don't think well, yeah, they do yeah especially outside the players players entrance they kind of there's faces don't they that don't just want a selfie do they actually want an autograph no they want offer, there's people who sell them and stuff they like yeah. still hang you get the same guy outside the players entrance every week and they're like have you not got enough of these yet like <laughs> and, you know Leave that guy alone, all right? You know, we all have those moments from time to time. I I used to go and watch Manchester United and there would be a guy with like printed glossy pictures of the players that she was clearly going to sell and he had he'd have a stack of like 200 of them just trying to get the players to sign them all and I'm like, "Well, this is clearly your business." And I remember Manchester United players basically saying to him, "No, obviously not because you're you're going to sell them." Oh, there's people as well if you if we played in like a I don't know, somewhere in the northwest, and we stayed in a hotel. There was autograph hunters who would find out what hotel you're in, and so when you come down, like for breakfast in the morning, they'd be hanging around in the lobby, <laughs> waiting for with these books open. And again, you got to know the same faces. 
<laughs> over like a 10 year period the same guy at the same hotel oh dear uh, listen guys that's been it appreciate your stories your tales uh, we'll be back on Monday Gregor Robertson Tom Clark Ali Rudd thank you very much indeed uh, just a reminder before we go you can subscribe to the Times for more top football analysis and insight just search Times subscription for more details we will see you on Monday take care Listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.